Amen. Hey, welcome to the table, you guys. Good evening. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm so glad that you're with us tonight. Going to be a little different tonight. Um, and here's our, our reason why. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, one of the things among the many things that he said was, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. If at some point on the road of life somebody picks up a wound, we all ache alongside of them. Through the highs and through the lows, together in this we go. I say that because we come with wounded hearts tonight. Yesterday morning, one of the church's most visionary of voices, uh, the prophetic writer, Rachel Held Evans, passed away at the young age of 37 years old, leaving behind two kids and a husband. And the church lost a voice. The church lost a, a visionary. Rachel Held Evans, she was a writer, but she was a pastor to so many of us in this post-evangelical world. She was a prophet. She was a shepherd to all of us who have left the church because we felt like the church first left us. She was our voice. She was our ally. She was our champion. She was our advocate. She was somebody that we looked to again and again, and now she is gone. And we're still here. It's not a stretch to say, and I think, you know, I was just talking about, to Ben about this beforehand. You know, before there was the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, before um, you could be an inclusive community outside of the exclusive community that you came from, before that was a normative move to make, it was Rachel Held Evans who said that we should do that, that this is what love looks like when it moves from words to flesh. And so it is not a stretch to say that our community, us being in this room here tonight, would not happen if not for voices like hers if not for those people who go on ahead of us and say, this is the way that we live this thing out. This is how we do this in real life. And so we're going to take a moment. We're going to remember her story. And I'm not going to talk any more for a moment, and then I'll talk again. But I don't want you to hear from somebody who loved more than just Rachel's uh, books and blogs, but somebody that really loved Rachel and that was really loved by Rachel. So welcome Ben up to the stage. just have to turn it on and then it will okay there you go okay yeah um i actually thought i cried all my tears yesterday um i was gonna start this off saying i was all out um not true <laughs> um just you have to bear with me through it <laughs> rachel was an author speaker blogger a new york times bestseller a member of president obama's faith initiative a wife, a mother to two very young children, and she was my friend and my hero, a prophet, and the reason I remain a Christian today. She meant a lot to me. Uh, for those who don't know, Rachel went into the hospital a couple weeks ago for an allergic reaction uh, to a medication uh, she was on for the flu, and she never came out. Uh, she was placed in a medically induced coma, and yesterday she died at the age of 37. Today it feels like I'm mourning two people. Rachel, the kind and generous and compassionate friend, and as she was known, R.H.E., uh, the saint who forever changed the trajectory of Christianity. Rachel's life's work, 
her legacy was building tables in the wilderness, tables she set for so many of us who are walking away from our faith. Queer people, neurodivergent people, women, people of color, people who asked too many questions, people who voted for Democrats and believed in science, people the church had campaigned against and mocked, called unclean and unworthy of God's love and acceptance, people who did not see themselves as people in the story of God. Rachel saw us, though. She saw us, and she saw herself in us, and it broke her heart. It made her angry. <sighs> Sorry. And so she spoke up, even though she knew it would come at a great uh, cost to her professionally as an author, speaker, and uh, personally as a citizen living in her small conservative town in Tennessee. Uh, she spoke fiercely against the arbiters of broken and violent systems at work in the church. She spoke out because she was good, she was honest, she was generous, and she refused to be a hypocrite. Whenever some gatekeeper tried to get between us and God, claiming if we shrunk ourselves and twisted ourselves into a version of ourselves that they would find more palatable, Rachel would raise herself up like a mama bear and say, this isn't your guest list. This table doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God and there's room for everyone. Though those in the church often treated her and wrote about her like she was a poison, calling her a heretic and a false teacher, Rachel never despised them for it. It would be dishonest to say that she did. She loved them. She knew where they came from, and she honored her heritage. She just wanted them to be better. She wanted all of us to be better. Rachel was unflinchingly honest about her doubts and always felt some grief at the gulf between the young, unquestioning faith of her youth and the skeptical, inquisitive faith of her adulthood. Through her honesty, she gave us all permission to wrestle with God. She let us ask the questions we were afraid to ask. She learned to lean into the Eucharist and the practices of the Episcopalian Church. She found the heart of God in the rhythms of faith. She wrote a line that often encapsulates my own limping faith. Jesus is still the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. Uh, one writer, D.L. Mayfield, commented uh, yesterday about how Rachel refused to Rachel refused the lazy label of heretic, meant to silence and mock. She was a woman of God and showed us wanderers that we weren't lost. We were tr just trying to be faithful. Above all, <laughs> I'll always remember her kindness to me. My uh, personal friendship with her was distant, forged on the internet through writing. She lived in Dayton and I here. <laughs> And there are months and months when we weren't communicating. But she always would remember to reach out in times of pain and in times of celebration. She joked that we shared a brain, had identical interests and weaknesses. She never hesitated to tell me about a show she was binge watching. <laughs> uh, the first time I met Rachel was in Chicago for the Gay Christian Network uh, conference uh, where she was the keynote speaker. Among queer Christians, uh, Rachel was and is an icon. She is our hero. And everyone was buzzing about seeing her in the flesh, hearing her speak directly and only to us. Her and I had only known each other for a year or so through messages online. I wrote for her blog, but she knew a lot of people, had forged a lot of friendships. And I knew that day from her social media feed that she had uh, some traveling issues and had been on the move since 4 a.m. I didn't want to bother her or presume that she would think of me um, to come find me. When I walked into the lobby of the hotel, my friends came up to me and said, dude, where have you been? Rachel's been looking for you. And about 10 minutes later, she rounded the corner, 
running at me, arms open. I said, there you are. She gave me a big hug, and we talked. And even though I knew she was exhausted, she stayed and kept talking with me. Uh, the following night, I, um, I came down with the flu. I was staying at a hostel with four strangers uh, in a room. And uh, this one guy who didn't really speak English, but he kept saying he was a doctor. And, uh, <laughs> and I, messaged, I, messaged, I messaged Rachel um, to let her know that uh, you know, I wasn't going to be there for the Saturday evening uh, talk. Um, but it was such an honor to be able to, uh, to meet her and to talk with her in person. And her immediate response was, Look, I have an extra bed in my room. Why don't you come stay with me? <laughs> I didn't, because <laughs> I felt that that would ensure. <laughs> yeah, that's Jesus. That's Chris Nielsen. That's, she was one of the best. C.S. Lewis once wrote, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. And if I'm honest, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what this phase will look like without her voice and her compassion and her honesty. I'm afraid of losing the one that invited me and so many others back to the table. But Rachel has a word for that too, which I'll close with. Death is something empires worry about, not something gardeners worry about. It's certainly not something resurrection people worry about. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. Come on, peace. been amazing to me in the past 24 hours since we caught news that she died. How many Bens are out there in the world? How many people who didn't just care about Rachel or her work, but how many people felt cared for by Rachel? And it was so constant in all these different voices from all across the country that would say things like, she's the first person to email me out of the blue and encourage me to write that blog. She is the first person to advocate for my, it's just again and again, people's stories came to life through the love that she lived. And that is a powerful testament to what it looks like to be rooted in the story of Jesus and love others as he lived up, loved us. I shouldn't say much after everything that Ben just said. But I was thinking about this text um, as I hear Ben talking about how Rachel consistently, and I heard others talk about how Rachel consistently would elevate others at an expense to herself. You, you can't hear pe about people like that without thinking about how absent that has been in the church. To Ben's point, how many people have tried to guard and guest list a table that they had no right to do so? How many people had the audacity to call God's children orphans? Well, thankfully, there are always those voices that see the law and raise the stakes with love. And when I think about the voice that Rachel was in the modern church today, I think about the voice that Paul was at his time. There is that moment where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, where the church in Corinth wasn't that different than the church in our country. It had a lot of things going for it, a lot of good things too. They were, they were growing, they were getting bigger and bigger, but they were also getting less loving and less loving. Their table, where they, did, where they gave away the body of Christ, the bread and the wine, where they looked into people's eyes and said that you are beloved just as you are and not as you should be, they said that you could come and you could come, but you, sir, could not. 
you, ma'am, are not welcome here. And the story of Jesus inside of this Jesus community, it got more and more lost and more and more twisted. And so Paul writes this stunning text that is beautiful. It is a text that is lovely. It is a text that we read at weddings. But it is a rebuke. He's pissed off. He is upset at the desecration of Jesus' story that is happening in this one community. And so he writes them. And he calls them out on it. And he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, then I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast. But if I don't have any love, I'm not gaining anything. Think clearly about what Paul is saying here. If I speak like T.D. Jakes and if I can prophesy like Lauren Hill, if I have a faith that can do all sorts of miraculous healings, I can do anything and everything. If I give all of my money, every penny that I have ever picked up to the homeless downtown, if I move to Calcutta and I give my body away to hardship, if I do all of these things, it's a lot of things, but if love's not in any of it, it's nothing. I'm nothing. I gain nothing. On the other side of it, Here's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It doesn't remember the thing that you did that one time when you said that one thing. Love doesn't get excited about evil, but it celebrates the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. But other things will. Other things are too fragile. They don't have the fortitude that love does. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it won't hold up. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Act like an adult, Paul is saying. Which is, I kind of hate that advice because have you seen any adults lately? Sounds like terrible advice. But his point here is that there is a childish this involved in a loveless life. I mean, let's just, let's just, let's, let's, let's be humans here, okay? Think about your past week. How much time did you have on your calendar filled up with petty disagreements that you didn't need to bother with? With he said, said, she said, he took that, they did this. I can't talk to them because he voted for her. I can't talk to her because he voted for him. I'm still mad about that thing they did in high school. I'm st- he did that and I responded like this. And if I say I'm sorry, then I am enabling that. How many of our lives look nothing like this love? 
Paul says, like, this is the aim. This is what it's all about. Love is patient. This is a true story. And I'm going to tell you because she's not here. Dangerous, I know. This morning, I went up to Lauren and I said, Lord, what should I, like, talk about tonight? Like, <laughs> it's always healthy to know, right? And she said, well, what's the text that you've been thinking about? And I said, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, that is the first fruit. We're on a series about the nine fruits. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Stops me right there and she goes, but you are the least patient person that I know. <laughs> True story. And I threw my coffee at her and <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? But she's right. I, I've been thinking about that as I've been thinking about tonight. Like, I, I, love is patient, but I'm not particularly patient. The other side of that, however, is that I am more patient than I used to be. I'm not the epitome, the embodiment of perfect patience, but I am more patient than I was five years ago. I still struggle with being kind, but I am more kind than I was a few weeks ago. Paul writes to put away your childish things, quit being childish, and I just don't think that's in the card for us. However badly I wish that our maturation process, that our lives would turn into pure lovers with the flip of a switch. The reality is, is we never quit being childish. We are always quitting being childish. It's always a process. It's always a one step in front of the other as we learn to take on this life of love, which is why last week we spoke so intensely about abiding in Christ, abiding in the story of the Son of Love so that you can actually embody the life that he lived. But it's not a flip of the switch. We do not quit putting away childish things. But we're quitting. We're trying to grow in this specific direction. There is a path here that Paul is laying out to the Corinthian church saying this is what it looks like. If you're going to be a church, if you're going to have the audacity to carry the name of Jesus in your life, if that's where your highest level of fidelity lies, then you need to be a person who is patient. You need to work on your kindness. This is what love looks like. And I know it's more tempting to get caught up in knowledge, right? We want to make faith all about what we are here to learn. But Paul says it's actually about you are here to love. How are you going to do it? You want to get caught up in prophecies. But are you becoming more of a lover? Is that actually happening? Here's why that matters. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Hear these words, church. In all of our lives, in your life, my life, Rachel's life, Ben's life, in all of our lives, these are the three most important pieces. Faith, hope, and love. But if you're going to a deserted island, you can only take one. Take love. If you have to choose which one is the most important, take love. If your faith is coming at the cost of your love, if your faith is making you more closed-minded, more cruel, more cold, if your faith is calling you to guard a table that is not yours, then take love. Leave that. If you have a hope for a desired outcome and you can justify any means to get to that end, 
if that hope is coming at the cost of love, leave that hope. Take love instead. These three things are the greatest of things. But the most important thing Paul tells us is love. Nothing surpasses that. Love is the ultimate aim. What Paul is pushing for, what every saint since has pushed for, is a collective understanding amongst us in this room. Let's not think about everybody else outside, just in this room. A collective understanding that faith and hope and love are all important, but love takes the cake. It is the greatest criterion of value because it is the clearest, most compelling message that you find in the life of Christ. If it's not for love, it's a loss. If I do it all but I don't love, it's no gain. Our faith is called to have a nutritional value that makes other people more rich around us. The heretics are not those who have disagreements about that which nobody knows. The heretics are those that care more about books than bodies, more about statements of faith than stories of strangers. Do we love? Are we rooted in this story of love and becoming lovers because of it? It's evidence as we think about these past 24 hours, all these voices that have spoken to the value of Rachel's life. That again and again, she chose to give her life away for those around her. Again and again, she recognized that the central text that tells the story of our faith proclaims the simple truth that people are indeed worth dying for. She died yesterday, but she died 10,000 times before that. With every person that she, choose, that she chose to amplify, with every stage that she stepped off so that another could step on, she died. With every time she gave away what was hers so that another person could come fully into who they were, she died. She was so compelled by the life of Jesus that she lived it unto death again and again and again. May the same be said about us. Is our love bringing bodies out of the blur? Or are we just making noise? Clanging cymbals, loud gongs. One of the things that I thought was profound about Rachel's life is what this writer wrote yesterday. An immediate testimony to Rachel Evans' life is the amount of folks of color who are deeply mourning her death. In this political climate, it is rare to find someone of such integrity, conviction, and character. Her pursuit of justice and righteousness was and is captivating. And then there was this from her friend, Austin Channing Brown, the writer who wrote that profound book, We're Still Here. She wrote this. Years ago, before Trump, before Black Lives Matter, when the nation was asking, are we post-racial now? When the church was asking, but can women really lead and the question, are you affirming, was still being whispered in hushed tones. There was a woman named Rachel Held Evans. And Rachel was a woman of valor. Rachel believed in supporting black women before there was a hashtag. 
Way back then, she couldn't get enough of Christina Cleveland's blog. Christina featured one of the first pieces I had ever written, and Rachel was the first to love it. No one other than Christina knew my, no one other than Christina knew my name. I had three followers on Twitter. Rachel tracked down my email and asked if she could feature me on her blog, and of course I said yes. But she wasn't done yet. When publishing houses started to express interest, I sent her a text, and I said, girl, what am I supposed to say? And what do I ask? She gave me a list of questions to ask any publishing house or agent interested in my work. Her list gave me courage and made me sound far more competent than I actually was, but she wasn't done yet. She decided to host a conference called Why Christian. There, I met my hedge of protection and had my first speaking gig that could actually pay some bills. But she wasn't done yet. She introduced me to her speaking agent, and then she introduced me to her literary agent, and when I landed my first book contract, she asked about my advance and my conversation with the publishing house because she wanted to make sure I was being treated fairly. And you know she still wasn't done yet. She answered every text, every question, every phone call. She checked on me when I was pregnant and after I gave birth. When she invited me to conferences, it was always, always to be myself. She knew her audience was largely white, but she did not expect me to cater their expectations. It was her expectation that I would always be myself and that I was more than enough as I am. She made me laugh. She made me think. She didn't just call me a woman of valor. She treated me like one. I hope to honor her investment in me, and I dread the day that I forget that she's gone and I try to call her again. There's something sobering about remembering a life that's lost. When you hear all the different accounts of how they lived while they were here, what would be said about us when we go, when our time is done? I'm going to close with these words from Rachel. When I'm talking with atheists about why I'm still a Christian in spite of the fact that I've got a lot of intellectual questions and struggles with Christianity, um, what I usually tell them is just, um, you know, I realize that I could be wrong. I really do. I realize that I might have this entire thing wrong, <laughs> but the story of Jesus is just the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. I, I just, I see in Jesus something true and something real, and I have experienced that not just in the Bible. The notion that Jesus is somehow restricted to the Bible or God's presence is restricted to the Bible is a false one. I have experienced and known Christ in communion. I have experienced and known Christ when I'm hanging out with the least of these. I've experienced and known Christ in suffering. Um, so all of these experiences with Jesus have convinced me that this is just a person and a story that I'm willing to risk being wrong about. So maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe none of this is real, but I can't stop following Jesus. I can't stop being compelled by the truth that he teaches and the simple truth of loving God and loving your neighbors. What's the, uh, the gospel? Like, is that like a brand? I I mean, the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. It's that um, Jesus is God's dream for the world, God's dream for all of us. Jesus is how God 
feels towards us. I mean, the good news is that when God became flesh, God suffered too, just like the rest of us. And that when God became flesh, God hung on a cross and looked out at the people who put him there and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, the good news is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. The good news is that we fellowship with Christ in suffering. The good news is that we meet God in the least of these. Uh, the good news is, is that there's hope. Um, and the good news is that God looks like Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. I find that to be incredibly good news, especially when I'm fretting and worrying that maybe God hates all the same people I hate. Maybe God hates me. Maybe God hates the marginalized. Maybe God's against me. Maybe God's against this world. And then I look at Jesus and I see God dying before holding our sins against us. I see God choosing to hang on the cross and choosing to forgive rather than hold our sins against us. Nadia Bowles-Weber says that Jesus says, I would rather die than be in the sin accounting business anymore. That's really powerful. Um, so that's the good news. And it's good news for everyone. And if it's not good news for the poor, if it's not good news for the marginalized, if it's not good news for the sick, the suffering, it's not good news for me. It's not good news. Um, so yeah, and I, I believe it. <laughs> uh, sometimes with a limp and sometimes um, it's a struggle, but I believe it. The good news is the love we know in Jesus, the love that we're called to. And I love the quote that Matt had up earlier from Rachel Held Evans. This is what the kingdom looks like. And what the kingdom looks like is a love that welcomes and includes everybody. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion together on Sunday nights. We, we celebrate a God that loved us so much that he came to earth, he made himself human so we could see what that love looks like, what, it's, what a love looks like that sets itself aside for others, that sacrifices for others that welcomes others to a table. And that's the table we gather around when we come together on Sunday nights here. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with those that he loved and he broke bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. Remember love. And he took the wine and he poured it into the cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. I've come for all. I call you all my beloved. And when you drink from the cup, remember that love. And so that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup. And we remember that we are called to that kind of love that we have a God that loves us like that, that we are a resurrection people that are rooted in the story of Jesus and that we get to do that together. So during the music, we invite you to come forward. And there'll be gluten-free elements here and regular elements on the side. You can take your bread and you can dip it into the cup. And we can remember that love, a love 
like Rachel Held Evans showed us. So please stand and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.